Hi, I'm Mitch Stocker. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Life in the Peloton. Hope you enjoyed the last episode with Luke and I when we were discussing the classics. I thought it was pretty fun. Um, cracked a couple of beers, probably too many. But anyway, if you haven't heard it, go back and check it out. Um, that's last week's episode. Anyway, today I'm chatting with fellow Australian pro Roy Sutherland and we're on our way back from Paris-Nice. And Nice being pretty close to Girona, um, rather than go to the airports and hang around and fly from Nice to Barca and then get in the car and drive back to Girona, what we do is we just jump in cars and boost back from Nice. And Rory jumped in our car, the EF car, and I thought, you know what? Good chance to get a pod done. So um, actually, and plus, I've also been really wanting to record Rory about his story. He's been... You know, I heard a little bit about it in the media and I've talked to him a little bit about it over the years. So I thought it'd be really good to hear his side of the story. Um, back in 2005, in the tour of Germany, he had a positive test return for a substance he had no idea about, you know, completely unknown to him. Um, and this test is pretty much the first part of his story. But what is more interesting is how him as a first year pro dealt with the news of that but then how it hasn't negatively affected his very, very long successful career, you know, still in the sport 15 years later. Um, So, you know, you have to excuse the volume on this one because we're in the car and we're literally on the road and it can be hard to hear sometimes. I've done my best to pick the volume up. So anyway, without further ado, sit back and enjoy another episode. Welcome to Life in the Peloton, Roy Sutherland. With finally. 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 I've been talking you up since our time together, riding home from Head News Blad. Oh, yes, yes. That's true. Two weeks ago. And um, presented the idea to you, let it sink in. And then we had time to sort of chat again here at Paris Nice. And that's where we are now. We're driving back from Paris Nice in the car. So excuse the external noise. But just wanted to get it straight after the race. Good time to do it. It is. Um, before we get into what I want to talk to you about today, first I want to touch base with Fresh in the Mind, mm-hmm. Parry Nice. <laughs> oh, Parry Nice. It's the evil race. It is. The worst, I think it's the worst. I'll go as far as saying it's the worst race of the year. <laughs> uh, in a good way and a bad way. Uh, I think it's worse because of whether the type of riders that come that you get all the sprinters and all the the GC guys together so it's like a mini Tour de France but then with really bad weather so it turns into a bit of a crash fest you know we were talking the other day maybe not you or me I was talking to someone and we were actually calculating how many broken bones the percentage in this in this event in this event in in total or this year no in this in just Paris-Nice and it's like five I think we figured out it was a little bit more than five percent of the peloton broke a bone in this race, oh. which is quite a lot it is when you think lot, about yeah. it, you know. Have you have you ridden the Tour de France? Yes, last year. 
would you can you actually compare it to the Tour de France parts of it I think the the stressfulness I mean. the stressfulness in the last 50k's especially with these windy days we had here in Paranese was definitely some similarities where you get the road is completely blocked and no one can get around and then you know it's that domino effect when somebody touches a wheel or whatever um, so that, but it's it's like a Tour de France with nobody on the side of the road watching <laughs> basically because to explain to everyone who's listening that what happens here is really weird not weird but not a lot of races this happens in is at a certain point in the race you can't move from the position you are and that can be like 80k to go suddenly you're in 80th position and you can move to like 75th and then go back to like 83rd and that's like the realm that you move I think it's probably really hard for people to understand that they're like yeah. why don't you go up around the outside because like, you well, can't there, is, there, is, there no is no outside yeah. everyone's like <laughs> side to side exactly. side to side everyone's about 10 millimeters from each other yeah one thing I had to get this week was my shoulders massage because I was gripping onto the bars too tight funnily enough I my massage therapist was also saying how how tight my neck was all week he goes you're not usually this bad I'm like well yeah no I'm on the brakes probably half the day so and it's it's the stress you know yeah my hands got sore <laughs> exactly and then today we finished with like the typical knee stage which is on paper it doesn't sound too hard 110k shorter climbs like 5 6k climbs not overly steep either like 5% 6% yeah are just on it's a really really tough start, day start to finish full, yeah. full gas which is I think great for I think it's great for cycling and uh, great for viewers because it changes it can change the overall of the race it makes it a different dynamic it's better than watching I think a lot of people watching a 200k stage with a you know 100k of nothing yeah now what I want to talk to you about today the book let me just say the book's come out I've got my I've got my notes the here notes but one thing I actually stupidly didn't note down was what year? 2005. Right. Oh, we're going to go into it, are we? We we're are. Going into it. We're going into it, people. We're going into it. And in 2005, yes, you're establishing yourself as a pro in Europe. You'd already done a, a really good amateur, amateur scene with Rabobank. Yeah. Con- Continental, I, yep. I think they'll call that then, and then yep. you just moved to the pros. Yeah, in my first year, World Tour professional. And uh, yeah, did the Giro as a first year pro in 2005, and uh, coming off a of, you know, uh, which was quite heavy. And then after that, I had a good, you know, good little season, and uh, I think around third in Tour of Denmark as a first year, which was quite nice. And also up there in Gen Wavelgum, I saw. Yeah, Gen Wavelgum. Yeah. Back when, back when I didn't have children and didn't didn't fear much, <laughs> where I didn't use my brakes like I do now. And I think um, everyone forgets that like you were a pro already with Rabobank a lot of years ago, mm-hmm. and then you're again now a pro back in Europe. Yeah. You know, a uh, couple of years ago with you know Movistar, Tinkoff, Tinkoff, before, then, then Movistar, Movistar, and then now UAE. Now UAE. Yeah. But there was a gap in between where you rode in the States and yep. even before that there was a gap and I see your, your career as two parts yep. and in the middle of that in 2005 the worst thing that can happen to a bike rider happened <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's a 
it, it's it's a story. It's the typical story. Well, not typical. It's a cycling story, of course. You know, but everyone has their own side to, to different things. And it's uh, you know, I think I was in my eighth or ninth, eighth or ninth month of being a, a world tour pro. So I'm this, you know, uh, lower paid uh, professional rider. I got through the Giro, like I said, and all that. And then you know. Sitting at home and had a letter in the mail that said that I I was positive. Tested positive. Tested yeah. positive. Yeah. Which, when you're 24 years old and you know you can you can roll the same story that everybody says of like I don't know what's going on I don't know where this came from, uh, but that is the story unfortunately or fortunately. Uh, so yeah, got a little thing in the mail and uh, went across to my neighbour's house who was a who was a rider. Because I didn't know what to do. I was sitting at home by myself, 20, 20, 23, I think I was. Went to his house. I'm like, you know, you got to help me read this. Half of it's in French and uh, the rest of it's in, in Dutch. And I could read Dutch, but, you know, I really wasn't in the, in the mental state to be able to understand what was in the letter. And more specifically, what the product was that was there. Mm. And so we had, uh, the funny thing was, now it's funny, is that we had to go Google it. Yeah. I was like, oh, so what is this? Like, what what the hell is this? So, yeah, it was a little, I call it a, now I call it a speed bump. You know, it's something that it's, uh, unfortunately, in cycling, there's already the stigma in cycling that that exists and, and you get kind of branded. I've been, I've had it kind of chasing me around no matter what year it is. And now we're, what, 12, 13, 14, 14 years since then. Yeah. And it's, it'll still pop up every now and again. But it is what it is, you know. It's part of... It's like anything in life, I think, that if you... Uh, the good and the bad mould you into the person that you are. And there are a lot of... You know, I won't deny it was a shit situation. And a shit thing to have to go through when you're, you know, you're a 23-year-old, for sure, for me and my family. But on the other side, it was... It, you know, it... I'm not going to say it meant I felt fell in love with cycling in a different way, but it, may, it meant that I approached it in a different way during the suspension and after the suspension about what I wanted and where I wanted to be. Well, just before we go into that, because actually that's mainly what I want to talk to you about today, but so everyone can understand exactly what happened in that moment, what exactly happened... What did you test positive for? Just run us through exactly what happened so we know what happened. Yeah. Well, if I if I really knew, it would be a lot easier for me as well. It's that it's that closure, you know. There's, you know, we went through the year as a a neo pro, and yeah, in a time of cycling that was that was pretty, you know, 2005 was not a nice time for cycling. You know, the, that era was there was a lot of dodgy stuff going on in the sport. Uh, where I was in the team I was in, honestly, at, at the level that I was at and the, the pay scale that I was at, I was not involved in any of that. You know, it wasn't even worth it because it's not. I'm just a you know a shit neo pro. Were you a neo pro and completely um, oblivious to what was going on, or were you starting to become aware of what was going on and not interested? I think we, I think we were all. I think everyone is aware of what's going on, but it's not. If it doesn't, if it doesn't, if you don't notice it, uh, 
how do you how do you notice it? Just because you're getting beaten, you're a neo pro. You're getting your butt kicked, and that's kind of normal. Yeah, totally. Well, that was normal at the time. Now all the neo pros seem to win everything, uh, which is also you know shows a great change in how the, how the sport has changed. Um, but I was I think I think at that age you're always naive and, and oblivious. Um, but you know it was a an event that you know something something came up in one of the tests and it came up as uh, I learned quite a lot about the whole uh, testing procedure and, and all that but it was I think I think the amount was like five to ten nanograms per milligram or something which is from what I understood at the time and I haven't even thought about it much since then <coughs> is like smaller than the smallest tip of a needle that you can ever think of mm, right so it's like, you know, you're talking about a minute, minute trace of something, which is still, it's pretty black and white in the system. Um, if it's there, it's there. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was a product that I'd never heard of before, which could or could not have been involved in, in a vitamin we were taking or something like that, or I got no idea, you know, yeah. and it would have made it a lot easier. If you could, if, if I you had no idea and you from. could trace it back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it would have also reduced the suspension. The, the funny, I guess you can say it's funny about it. If I had if I had been blood doping like everyone else was on an EPO and had admitted to it and got you know was positive for that, I would have got less time suspended. How much time did you serve? 15, 15 months. Fifteen months, I think. Yeah. Fifteen months suspension. As did they backdate it? Yeah. You know, at that time, it was all through the Belgian Federation because that's where I was licensed because I was living there. And at that time, there was a big push from the Federation so they couldn't go easy on people. So I, you know, pretty much the book thrown at me. But from the conversations I had with the, the, the people at the Belgian Federation, they even said to me, they're like, you know, we don't, this, we, we don't have a choice. It is what it is, and it's you know, it's black and white, and it's there, and this is what we have to do. This is what we're being told that we have to do. We can't clear you because then we get, you know, then you have to go to the court of arbitration in sport, and UCI gets involved, and wider and everything. Uh, but no, it was a, it was an experience. It was, it was an experience. Just to go back to that moment, because I'm just trying to imagine. I lived in Holland for the start of my career, <laughs> and. Nowhere. I'm not even going to try and compare the same situation, but I remember one day I opened up a phone bill, and I must have been buggering around back when the internet wasn't really free. <laughs> yeah. And I had something like a 300 euro internet, I mean, a phone bill. Yeah. I didn't have 300 euro, and no. I sort of I went next door with this letter, and I got my neighbours to help me read and call up the phone company and get out of it. So. Yeah. I'm I couldn't not gonna, get out of it. I wish I could have called I up someone and get out of it. Well, I didn't get out of it, but I had to pay it <laughs> off. But I can, in a very, very small way, relate to that, going next door, having no idea what to do, alone yeah. on your own, yeah, yeah. and just feeling like so alone in the but world. That, that's what we face, is, yeah. as, specifically as Australians, I think, in Europe, is that you are so far away from, from where you grow up and where your, where your home is, yeah. you know, and, and where your family is. You know, you're basically, to an extent, on your own. I know these days a lot of the guys are not so much on their own because there are so many, you know, there's an Australian team, there are very international teams now, mm. a lot of English-speaking teams, and back then it uh, didn't exist. You know, you, 
was the era I was in the team with Matt Heyman and you know Matt and I speak fluent Dutch because you there had to. was no English yeah. uh, you know no one spoke everyone spoke English but they didn't want to uh, and it wasn't an international team we were the minority um, but yeah I don't know what you could you could I think anyone can kind of relate in in the world is it's it's a trauma you know it's the feeling that I think somebody would get if you see a car crash or if you hear that something's happened someone's passed away in your family or a shock you know something that you don't expect coming that will from that point on change your life dramatically um, you know I was very lucky I think I look at it now luckily after all this time and I looked at it like that I think from when it happened is that there are a lot worse things that can happen in the world um, and it's a very you know it's cycling it's sport it's, it's, it is what it is and it's shit but no one died no you know my family is still around my family supported me and and my real friend you figured out your real friends the ones that you know were trying to help you out and call you straight away and all that I, I still remember having to go on you know I called I, called, I had to call the first phone call I had to make was to the boss of the team and he already knew about it because it, they get they get in, they actually get informed back then anyway they get informed before you do mm. so he knew it was coming not very a few hours before maybe and so I called him and he said yeah, yeah I'm in my car I'm driving south from the north of Holland you need to get in your car and drive north and we're going to meet in the middle of a hotel huh. uh, and I said I can't drive mate like I'm I'm not capable of, of thinking clearly right now um, so I rang Matt Heyman yeah. and uh, I said Matt I really need your help. And I gave him a quick, you know, a quick uh, thing about what, what was happening. And I said, Matt, you know, I've got my car, but I don't, I don't feel safe driving myself there and being by myself. And he said, no, just come around. And, and he drove me in my car up there and he went through that first part with me. You know, and I arrived, arrived at the hotel to meet, you know, the, the team manager. A quick uh, shake of the hand, not like, a, oh, hey, how you going? You know, <laughs> into a, the biggest boardroom you've ever seen. Just me and him with a bit of paper on the desk and, and a and a pen, and we had to sit in a boardroom and have a conversation and sign documents of me saying, you know, that I have uh, I'm no longer part of the team on that first day. Wow. And Matt Heyman sat there out the back that I was suspended, you know, from the team, effective immediately. <laughs> until we've everything got cleared up and then after and you know Matt Heyman sat there in the, the lobby of the hotel the whole time didn't say a word uh, came out and you know I apologised to him and he's like Rory don't even yeah. don't even worry about it we went back back down again and back down to where we were living in Belgium and uh, I, I, I even asked him to stay at his house you know I slept yeah. there the night and had to then had to make the phone call to my family and explain it to them and that was uh was not an easy one at all but yeah did you go home straight away to Australia yeah I think two days later I, I went to Australia because that's the thing with the process the process takes so long mm. is that you just have to sit around and then they delay the date and then there's the lawyers and then there's all this other stuff you know and the <clears throat> I think part of the situation that is uh, comforting to me anyway is that the team actually really believed in what I was telling them um, the team you know, it's hard to tell whether they're covering their own asses as well. Mm. Uh, but they, the team paid for all the lawyers. 
picked the top class lawyers they paid for an ind- independent uh, study into it to see what had happened they paid for testing all the medicine all the vitamins and all that stuff that the team that we were taking in the team well because um, at the end of the day they also don't want that to happen again if they no, believe exactly. that story yeah, yeah exactly exactly and it is you know they want to they want to get me out of it as well because it's bad for them you know it's a bad name for, for what they're doing but they you know they spent over I think they spent like 150,000 euros and I was making like 30 so they spent that just to you know fly me back and forth from Australia they paid for all of it you know which I I definitely thank them because they could have just wiped their hands wiped their hands clean and just walked away we that's him yeah yeah so there was it was it's a (coughs) you know if anyone if anyone has anxiety there's your anxiety you know there's your trigger you know, that, that feeling of anxiety, that's what you get from these situations. And, you know, I, I went back to Australia and uh, incredibly supportive family. I'm incredibly lucky that, one, I have a supportive family and I could just... And, two, that I didn't have any... I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have a car loan. I didn't have kids. I didn't have a wife. I didn't have anything. Mm. So I could just basically walk out and just go stay with my parents at home in Australia, in Canberra. And just basically, I, I, I could survive. Yeah. You know, there was no. As long what, as you could get over it mentally, I had no to other deal baggage. with it. I had to deal with it. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't have to pull a child out of private school or have to pay a mortgage when there's no salary coming in. So you know, I went back to Australia and it took me a few. Took me about two months of hiding out, basically at home because I was obviously ashamed mm. of what. I was in the press because then you know that every time you're going to go see someone you know that that's going to come up and you're going to have to deal with it even if you believe in in what happened and you know kind of what happened yourself people draw their own conclusions yeah, anyway totally, yeah. you know especially in cycling in sport and in general because uh, you're then tainted you're tainted goods uh, I remember just going back to Australia and, and Michael Rogers is uh brother Dean at a bike shop in Canberra and I used to go during the day I used to go out back uh, in his office or in the mechanic section which was kind of hidden out the back and we just I just sit there and talk to him when he uh, when he was fixing bikes and building stuff and he actually got me through quite a lot of it you know wow and then it took me a while to get you know the will and the want to go and ride a bike again well that's what I'm talking about yeah. so after something like that obviously you sort of you've got to that pinnacle and that's why I think it hurts so much because you've worked so hard to finally become pro you finally get there and then it's just like what the hell yeah you're back to you're back to less than square one yeah because you see so many people have been in situations like that and their return to professional cycling is in some shit team that pays nothing and I was like it's just not worth it to me to go do that so because I think on the way up as you climb up you're happy to deal with whatever you've got because everything you're doing on the way up is better than what it was before. Yes. And but suddenly when you've direction. been at the top <laughs> and you come back to what is lesser yeah, yeah. and you don't have that, I can deal with this motivation anymore. Yeah. So then that brings me to that point. What was your motivation? What did you do in that time off? What made you then go, I'm, I'm definitely coming back? I don't think there was ever I was coming back. It's kind of like you're in this pending you know you're paused it's like a pause button it's like you don't know where you you know you don't know what's coming next which is really 
I would probably hazard a guess that I was depressed for some of that time. You know, yeah. now you can were you say training that. or were you just riding for fun? Or? No, for a while I was doing nothing. Uh, but then I was like, well, you know, I got to. I actually have to do something. Once we actually, the best thing that happened out of all that is the actual suspension actually comes through, and that took four months to actually get the letter and go right. Now, now I, I, now I have something to work towards. Yeah. So you know, all right. You can wipe off the entire year of 2006. It's done. All right, so I got 2006 free. And the, uh, who was it? Um, you know, and some people listening to the podcast might remember, you know, when I'm speaking about Australian people like Michael Rogers' brother, Dean Rogers, uh, who I think was the first junior world time trial champion ever. Wow. When they had that. Uh, but they, you know, some people listening will know the names. And I, I went and met up with uh, Kate Bates, who was oh, a very, yeah. you know, very well-known Australian road cyclist and track cyclist, world champion on the track, uh, Olympian, all that stuff. She's she's moved on from cycling now, and children, and uh, she's in media now. And uh, I met up with her in Sydney because we were the same age, and we were kind of like brother and sister going through the national team. And she sat down and she said to me, she said, you know, she felt bad, and she's like, Rory you have an opportunity you know if, if to improve areas in your life or in cycling that you have never been able to do mm. uh, and I kind of struggled with the idea of that and she goes no but think about it whenever you get time off from cycling it's because you've broken a bone or you're injured she said you're neither of that so if you want to improve on time trialing you've got time to do it you've got the you know the, the you've got a chance to reset got a chance to yeah. completely reset Refind out, you know, rebuild. Wow. Whatever you want to do, which is a really interesting. Turn the positive say. spin on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was that was actually the fact that now, 14 years on, that I can remember these certain like key moments uh, is pretty cool. It means that they're they're really importantly engraved in the memory. Uh, and she said that, and I was like, oh great, you know, I'm going to go to university. And I was like, oh shit, I'm only suspended for a year. <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna take it. To, yeah, I'm gonna do this. Time. I'm gonna do that. Yeah. Like you know what? And uh, I think I'm not sure if it was her or somebody else said it to me as well. They were like, "Okay, so you're not allowed to race, but no one says that you can't enjoy yourself, that you can't learn, you can't, you can't be. You know, yeah. it's not. You're not. You're not locked up." Did the suspension initially feel like you were locked up? Like, that's what I'm sort of gathering, like... Yeah, it just, it, it you stops know? you. Like I said, it's a, it's a pause button. Yeah. You know, it's a... You can't do what you are conditioned to do, what yeah. you've been training to do, what you've been doing for, I think at that point, probably seven, eight years that you're working towards, and all of a sudden, it's just like a brick wall. It just stops. And you were going... You know, I was going in a good direction, which was, which was really cool. Um, and so, you know, that year was... It was kind of, I call it kind of like my effort, my, like effort, fuck it moment. Mm. Like, you know, what what can I do? What do I want to do? What do I what do I love doing? You know, I've got this beautiful ability that I can live at home with my parents. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't have to pay bills. I don't, I don't have any overhead. You're free, I'm actually. Free. Yeah. I'm actually quite free if you want a positive spin it. Uh, and so I was like, all right. And so I went and got a job. And I went and worked in a, I went, went and worked in a local bar. Oh, yeah. Like a bar restaurant, and I loved it because I wasn't doing it for the money. Yeah. And I, I don't think I could ever, I don't think I could continue doing it after that because it's a, it's an hospitality is a pretty hard lifestyle. It's a, it's a nighttime lifestyle. 
but I loved it, you know, talking to people. And I think it was one of those things that was like an escape for me because I could get behind the bar and it was the only time during... It was busy because we were playing football games and, and on the weekends was lots of people. And the boss wanted me always in the bar because I was quick. Mm. You know, I was fast on the till, I was fast getting drinks and I could talk to people and, you know, think on my feet. And I really... You know, I'd start a shift at, say, four in the afternoon. I'd organise myself, get everything done like I would. It was structure. That's, I think, what, what it really is. It's structure. And, and I'd get all this together. And then the next time I'd look at my watch, it would be 11 o'clock at night. And so I'd lost four or five hours, which at that time is what I wanted to do. Yeah. I wanted to just not think about everything else. And people just treated you moment. as the well, barman. Because you were the yeah. barman, yeah. yeah. And then I'd, you know, I'd exercise, I'd go, bought a mountain bike, go mountain biking with the boys. Nothing was, nothing had to be done. Everything could be done. Go mountain biking with the boys. Some of my mates were into, you know, triathletes and all that. Started swimming. Wow. So, so I went out swimming with them. And then, you know, lifting everything. I got a bit of a better body, not a bike rider's body. <laughs> you know, I met, met, a, met a few girlfriends that year and enjoyed that. Uh, and then there did become a time where it was like, right, if I want to get back into this, you know, if this is what I want to do, then I'm going to have to ride. So, you know, I think I call it like frustration training because it's not, you're not training towards a purpose, but you're using sport and exercise, which a lot of people do use in that way anyway, to, as an outlet to get rid of whatever anger that I had at the time or that I thought was, was, you know, wasn't just that it happened to me, I believe. Uh, but it is what it is. But it was a way, it was my outlet to get rid of all, all that kind of bad juju, that bad energy, go out on your bike. And, and I actually found that I, I could train better. I could ride harder and longer because I didn't care. You know, I, I, it's kind of a weird way to explain it, but I just didn't, I didn't care about actually, I wasn't training for something specifically. So I could just... I could just ride my bike and go destroy myself riding and that was okay. Yeah, because it wasn't there was, like... There was no repercussions yeah. for my actions then. So that was pretty cool. And so during that whole time, I did that for about six months and, and in the bar, you know, I didn't make much money. Um, but the money I did make, I bought a round-the-world ticket because huh. uh, I wanted to come to Europe and my coach from the from Rabobank was still, you know, trying to look after me and actually the general manager, Theo DeRoy, he was always saying to me, he goes, just stay out of the press, stay quiet, keep training. And he goes, he said, when your suspension's over, I have a plan that, you know, can get you back in. We'll, we'll, we'll start again. Did you trust him? I did. And, and now that I look at it, it was a way for me to just shut up from them, yeah. which you could take in a bad way. But the other side was it actually helped me in a great way too because it kept me motivated, kept me looking towards yeah. something. And it's a carrot. Yeah. yeah, and it kept me kept my mouth shut for them, which is good because then it's not in the press, and for me also because then also it's not in the press, so that I just disappear, and I wasn't you know at that time Tyler Hamilton had all his you know conjoined twin stories and all this other stuff, and they told me from the word go the press guy he goes he said it's not even worth talking to the media. Yeah. He said because whatever you say it's going to be taken in a bad way. And he goes, and it's always going to be there, and it's going to keep coming. The story's just going to keep coming back. He goes, just let it go. And so I just, I shut up. You know, I kept my mouth shut, and, and it, you know, it's one of those, those things that it's kind of killing two birds with one stone. It was great for them, and 
it ended up being great for me. So then, what was what was then? So okay, you've done the the time, the six yeah. months at the bar, and the the date was getting to a close. Were you then in contact with Rabo, or were you like, okay, now I'm really going to get myself going. I really want to come back in the professional scene, or were you just like, when that band goes, I'm just going to start racing and see what happens. Well, yeah, you got to kind of, you know, you have to have a team to do that as well. So I. My coach, who was the Rabo coach, was also the uh, the German triathlon Olympic coach at the time, and he was holding an altitude camp, uh, actually in Fontrameau in in France, really close to where I live now, yeah. <laughs> up from Puchera. And uh, he said, "Look, come to Europe, and we'll do a we'll do a block with the triathletes because he's getting them ready for the Olympics." I was like, "Yeah, I can do that." So, so is this getting close to the end of your band? Yeah, I think it was in the summer. It was over the tour into into August. And so I thought, yep, I'll go to Europe. You know, I did some riding in Australia and came across and uh, just kind of spent three weeks at altitude just riding my bike, you know. And that's I think that's the best way to put it. It's like there was no real structure. It was just like going out on adventures by myself, mm. just going, right, I'm going to do this loop, going hunger flat, something happens and don't have a phone to call anyone and just but just riding your bike and, and doing training and then going training you know I'd go swimming with the triathlete guys in the morning <laughs> at, at, up at the I think it's like the French uh, altitude camp there they have so there's a swimming pool and a running track and all that stuff and so I did that and then you know I bought this round the world ticket because I was like you know again it was like a screw this if I'm going to go to Europe I'm like instead of spending two grand to go to Europe I'm going to spend five grand. I'm just going to go around the world. And I literally grabbed the map. And I was like, where do I want to go? Because you kind of have to stop on these round the world tickets. You have to stop, you know, at a certain amount of continents around the world. So on the way, to, on the way into Europe, I saw Africa and I'm like, no, I'm a 24-year-old guy. No, not a care in the world, basically, except for all this that happened. And I was like, nah, I'm going to go to Africa. So I just went to Africa for a week. <laughs> went to Zimbabwe and Zambia and stayed in a youth hostel and went and saw elephants and wow. had some fun and Victoria Falls and then went to Europe, did the camp. And then on the way back, I was looking at the map and I'm like, right, I've got to go the other direction. And I looked and I was like, you know, I didn't grow up in a family that, you know, we were always active uh, people. You know, my mother was a PE teacher and we always went hiking and doing certain things, you know, walking. Uh, and... I saw the map and I was like, Kathmandu. I'm like, what's there? I was like, Himalayas. I'm going to the Himalayas. Wow. So I went to the Himalayas, hooked all that up and went for a couple of weeks uh, in the Himalayas, walked to the Annapurna, Annapurna circuit there, which goes over, I think, 5,800 metres. Uh, hiked around that and uh, just a, an experience. So... A lot of this was on your own, so was a lot of soul-searching in that, or were you just out there just doing whatever? I think I was too young to be soul-searching, to be honest. I think I was just I was just being. I was yeah. just surviving, getting through it, you know? And uh, I did that back to Australia, and then actually while I was in that process, I found out from Roadbank, just went through the Michael Rasmussen process in the tour, so that pretty much ended any chance I ever had of going back to the team, because uh, then they were being super vigilant on everything. And the sponsors didn't want to have anything to do with it. Uh, anyone who has any inkling or any 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 history. And so uh, I actually got an email from from the states at that time, 
out of the blue or you'd been? No, out of the blue. I hadn't been in contact with them and it was via, uh, I think it was via Greg Henderson and Nathan O'Neill on a team there, HealthNet, and they actually suggested to them, they're like, look, this guy is world tour level. Yeah. Like, he's a fucking good rider. And he'd be great in the States. And yes, this is the baggage that's associated, but, you know, they probably told him he's cheap. And it's a, there's a risk involved because you, you don't know how he's going to come back, but he's talented and he could do really well in the States. Did and you I, know these guys at all? No, nah, no idea. Hadn't even, hadn't even looked into the US. No, but I mean Greg and... Oh, not really. I knew Nathan a little bit, uh, but Greg I didn't know wow, at all. Wow, so this was a big thing. <clears throat> yeah, and then I was like, that's what I had. That's what was on the table at the end. There was that or a, or a small crappy team in Belgium that would just pull me back where I was, but looking at the bigger teams around me going that's where I should be, you know, or that's, in my mind, that's where I should have been. So when you went to the States, to fast forward a little bit, once you got settled there, was there always that aspiration of trying to get back to Europe, or did there come a point where you're like, you know what, this is for me? You met your wife there, did you? Yeah, I met my wife in the States, and what the States gives you is you, you, because because there's not so much money and prestige in cycling, is that all the guys racing are racing for a different reason. And it's it's friendlier, and it's not so cutthroat because it's not about money. Of course, you can get paid more, but it's, you know, there, there is money there. There's money to be made, but it's very... There's a lot of guys that have are at university, or there are a lot of guys, like the Australian scene. Mm. You know, you there's not many guys that can be full-time cyclists there. And so it's kind of, I just thrived in that environment. And it actually, what it, what it ended up doing was it really suited what skill set I had, which tended, which I didn't know that to begin with, but you know, I could handle myself really well at that point in my career. Uh, I could do crits, no problem at all. You know, I can do time trials. I could do pretty much everything. I could climb pretty well, especially in the States. I was at the higher end of that. And so I could, I, I got back into winning, you know, on that first year there, I just didn't give a shit, mm. and I didn't give a shit about uh, who I who I pissed off in the group. I didn't. I just didn't care. Just like, race. I just, I just raced my bike. Yeah. If I wanted to go, if I wanted to go and sprint, I'd go and sprint. If I wanted to be first in the last corner, I'd be first in the last corner. I'd just do it. And luckily, I had an engine to back me up that I could do it. And I just yeah, it was uh, it was fun. It was getting back to I guess when you say like the grassroots of racing. And then I think I learned there to be, I became the leader of the team and getting the best results the team had had and, and like thrived on that, really enjoyed it. So you, you, know? handled, you handled the pressure of the expectation well? I didn't have any expectations and I didn't have any pressure because I didn't care yeah. <laughs> because there was no, there's no repercussions to if I didn't win. Well, see, you know, you'd already been, well. sounds like you'd already been then to the worst that could happen. So you like anything from anything here is, is a positive. It is positive. There's no problem at all. You yeah. know? It's it's and and what was important to me was the the group of guys that we had around in the team that I was on HealthNet at that point. It was such a family, a group of guys that we all knew each other's girlfriends or wives or anything, and we'd all go and have a, have drinks and have pizza and you know just enjoy us. So we were just enjoying that time of life we were in, which then you know as we as any professional cyclist would know, that's what really brings a team together, yeah. is being that off-the-bike side of it, that you you are like family, that you go you go into the trenches for your mates. Uh, and yeah, and you know, that 
obviously then with the results coming and then at some point I think when I turned 30 I was like right I didn't really have a big aspiration to return to Europe to the same old crap that I knew it was because I was happy and then I but you know at 30 years old I was like right if I want to do it and see what can you know the no regrets like see whether I can do it and what I can do then now's the time to do it so what did you do start getting your manager to get start a manager con- get a manager and, uh, and start contacting teams and 2012 in the States had a really good year you know I won races in Europe I won a lot of races in the States uh, performed really well in all the big races you know won stages in Colorado won stages in Utah you know, won won I think 70 70 rider bunch sprints in Utah and then mountaintop <laughs> finishes in Colorado and, and kind of got the eye of Bjarne Reese and uh, yeah signed for, for Tinkoff and, or Saxo Tinkoff at that time Spent two years there and then moved on to Movistar and then now on to UAE for two years. So that's where we are now. It's quite a story. It is quite quite a a story. And one of the things I wanted to sort of ask you out of all that was hard to think back to Rabobank times, but if you had imagined yourself continuing on from Rabobank through to where you are now and the story that you've travelled now... Like, how's it set you up as a as a pro? Like, you it's know what not I mean? some, It's not how it set you up as a pro. How's it's it changed? How it's changed you as a person. Yeah. And what it's taught you. Because we all, I think we all learn from, you learn so many more lessons from bad events or from things that you, if something good happens, you don't really think about it. You just kind of brush it off. But if yeah. you get your ass kicked in a race because you weren't in the right position in a corner, your aim is you don't forget that you want to be back there or a crash or whatever and so I think you know and I've said it before to people and they're kind of unless anyone's been through this experience then then they don't really understand it Um, but I've said before that I like I actually would go through it all again Uh, I wouldn't change it I don't I don't want to change you know I'm, I'm happy with I'm completely happy with where I am I think I I don't think I'd still be racing if it hadn't have happened and I think I'd be racing at a different uh, like a different level as well like different mentality a different a different want and will you know I'm 37 years old and since I was suspended you know I'm kind of proud every single year every every year since then that I've been racing again which is 12 years now I've got paid more every single year so something got to be said with that, you know, for me. I'm like, well, I have to, must be doing something right and just really enjoying it, you know. It's a, different, it's a different mentality. It's a different way to look at cycling. And I think, you know, you can't tell what would have happened if it was that, it was that pure fork in a road moment. Totally. Of like, all right, you're going to go. But I don't even think it was a fork. I think it was a T-junction. It was like the complete opposite of the direction you thought you were going. And what, is it, what, what have I come out with towards the end? You know, I've learned something about myself. I've learned something about all the friends that I have. Uh, I learned to love riding my bike or racing, not just racing my bike, but love riding my bike. I met my wife. We have two amazing children. And I believe that I treat people now in a, probably in a different way than what I might have as well. Yeah. You know, you take yourself off the pedestal because you're not there anymore. You know, you've been knocked down. Uh, so you, 
you know, different. You have different values after after those events. You know, the respect levels that you have for people and and how you want to be, how you want to portray yourself. Yeah, it's, that's the thing, I, and I really thought you were going to say that because, yeah, I think this is something I said to Daryl a couple of weeks ago when we recorded that. There's a reason why you're a pro for ten years or more. Yeah, you know, everyone's got their little stories or big stories of speed humps. There's yeah. no pro from ten years that's had a smooth run. No, 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 no. Otherwise, they're not here. You know. Yeah. Um. So. And you see, I think you see a lot, like Daryl Impey and, you know, a lot of professionals that if you go through a really rough time, if you can get yourself out the other side, and this goes from injuries, goes from anything, or from getting knocked down onto a shitty team that you don't want to be on and you've got to get yourself back up there again, it kind of, it makes your, your career last longer. And it changes your perspective about what's important as well. Totally. Yeah. Well, mate, we're uh, probably halfway back to Girona now. <laughs> Which would be nice. Nice to go home. Thanks for the um, chat today. No worries. We can... It's time for another cold one. We've got a couple of travellers with us, don't we? I don't, I don't think I'm allowed to, being on UAE Emirates. You know, it's a... Uh, but we do have a little sneaky... Uh, yeah, sneaky. Oh, I don't mind it. I am Australian at heart still, even <laughs> though I'm quite internationally... We've got a couple of guys listening in the front here, so they've had the podcast, so um, thanks for being on the podcast, Rory. Yeah, you're welcome. It's, fine. it's about time. I've been waiting. I've been waiting uh, bated breath for years and years. Mate, I knew you'd be a good talker. <laughs> Enjoyed it. All right. Thanks, mate. No worries. Well, I hope you enjoyed that, and I hope that the audio was bearable. Um, I want to say thanks to my producer, Lara, and everyone for listening. Coming up, we've got some good episodes coming. I'm speaking with the Mitchelton Scott trainer, Ben Day, and finding out some insights to how he gets those boys firing. Also, Taylor Finney is coming up soon. As we get deeper into the classics, I'm going to talk to him. So plenty to come. Keep listening and sending in your feedback to us at Life in the Peloton at Instagram or Twitter. And look out for the next podcast coming up in a couple of weeks' time. So until then, see you soon.